Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. This week's episode is with Professor Rebecca Levine Coley, and we're talking about the HOPE 6 program, an effort led by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to redevelop distressed public housing into mixed-income communities. That program ran for about 17 years, from 1993 to 2010, and it built roughly 100,000 new units during that time. Now, a little more than 10 years later, it's time for a retrospective. As many listeners will know, public housing communities in the U.S. have struggled with high rates of poverty and racial segregation, and so a few explicit goals of HOPE 6 were to reduce poverty and increase racial diversity. One important strategy for achieving that was to build housing that people across a range of incomes were eligible for, which is in contrast to public housing's historic focus exclusively on very poor households. In our conversation, we get into how well the program actually achieved those goals, including the ways its impacts varied in different neighborhood contexts, and we spend a lot of time digging into interesting questions about gentrification, displacement, the role of the private sector, and a whole bunch else. For me, it was a super useful review of a program that impacted hundreds of thousands of people, but that I knew very little about. It was also a great reminder of some of the ways that we've really learned from our past and other ways that we still haven't. Just a quick note that we're publishing today's episode a day late, and that is entirely my fault. Hopefully no one was missing us too much on their Wednesday morning commute. I also mentioned my book during the interview, possibly for the first time in 44 episodes. And if you're interested in finding it at your local bookstore or library, the name is The Affordable City, and it's published by Island Press. This podcast happens to be an excellent complement to the book, by sheer coincidence, I'm sure. The Housing Voice Podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, with production support from Claudia Bustamante and Jason Suteja. As always, feedback and show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Now let's get to our conversation with Professor Rebecca Levine Coley. Rebecca Levine Coley is Professor of Counseling, Developmental, and Educational Psychology and Director of the Institute of Early Childhood Policy at Boston College, and she's joining us today to talk about HOPE 6, a federal program that redevelops public housing into mixed-income communities and its impacts on neighborhood poverty, racial composition, and community resources. Rebecca, welcome to the Housing Voice Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. My co-host today is Mike Lenz. Hey, Mike. Hey, Shane, uh, and great to meet you today, Rebecca, and good to be back on the pod. So as always, we start by asking our guests for a quick tour of their hometown or a place that is special to them. Rebecca, you said you want to do your hometown, Waterville, Maine. What what uh, what makes that place special other than you were born there, of course, and, and grew up well, there? Well, that's, uh, that's the most special. <laughs> that's, that's where, special. where do you want to take us as, a, as guests here? Well, I think it's just, it's a small town in central Maine, and it's, I see it now from my adult viewpoint as a microcosm of the loss of the manufacturing economy um, in America. So through my childhood, um, my hometown lost multiple paper mills and clothing manufacturers that employed substantial numbers of, of town residents, and that was followed by many hospitals merging or closing, um, which really led to a 
just a, a sort of overall decline in the economic vitality of the town and a loss of mm -hmm. many local businesses. And they're still really, I think, struggling to retain their vitality. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's a lovely place. Colby College is there, mm -hmm. has a fantastic art museum, and it's in a great uh, sort of lakes region in central Maine. That's beautiful. That reminds me, I've, I'm reading Bill Fulton's recent book, uh, Place and Prosperity, and he starts by talking about his uh, upstate New York hometown. Mm -hmm. I think it's called Auburn. And so he makes this, this point that seems so obvious. He talks about how difficult it is for people in the 21st century to understand just how self-contained small towns were in like the 1950s, 1960s, mm. right? Where like you just did not need to leave this town for basic errands for your job, et cetera. Like he talks about generations of his family that commuted a mile to work, you know, mm -hmm. within within that town. And it was just it, it just it's struck like pre me. pre Walmart Supercenter yeah. era. Yeah. yeah it just it just struck me like, oh, we've all I bet most of us have forgotten this, right? right? That like you did not need, we had the butcher, we had, you know, all, everything was just right there. And it just seemed so obvious in retrospect, but to see it on in print, I almost needed that. I think my hometown was 18,000, maybe 19,000 people when I was a kid. We had three hospitals. Um, we had oh. multiple department oh. stores. It was considered the big yeah. city in the area, <laughs> yeah. 18,000 people. So it it really it went through just a dramatic change. Mm. So the article we're talking about was published last year in Housing Policy Debate, and it's titled, Did Hope Six Move Communities to Opportunity? How Public Housing Redevelopment Affected Neighborhood Poverty, Racial Composition, and Resources, 1990 to 2016. In it, Professor Coley and her co-authors, Bryn Spielvogel, Dobbin Wang, Joshua Lone, and Samantha Texera, look at how the HOPE 6 program, which ran from 1993 to 2010 and redeveloped public housing with mixed income housing, changed the neighborhoods and communities around them, both in the short term and up to 10 years after being completed. And just so our listeners know, HOPE 6 is an acronym that stands for Housing Opportunities for People Everywhere, but we're just going to use the acronym for the rest of the discussion because that's all I ever hear anyone say. So also just not to digress, <laughs> but... Hope Six definitely made it into my dissertation. <laughs> Housing opportunities for people everywhere did not. So I oh, I, wow. I don't know how old I was when I learned what that acronym <laughs> stood for, but nobody uses nobody I was, nobody I was uses going the words. To, I was going to say like immediately after this that uh, it's not in my notes, but I had to note that it definitely sounds like the kind of acronym where someone came up with the acronym yeah. first and then backfilled. <laughs> and then also, what is the six? I, I didn't find out what the six stands for. Is it just uh, like the six? I don't draft? know because it... I don't think that there was a hope one, hope two, yeah. hope three. No. Yeah. I don't believe. I, I once knew this and I'm not even going to try. <laughs> um, there, There is a reason. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, a little background for folks that gets you nowhere. Um, <laughs> Rebecca, to set the stage here, could you tell us a little bit about the history of public housing? I realize that's a big question, but 
you know, how it led to the creation of the Hope 6 program and why policymakers believed that mixed income redevelopment was a better strategy than, say, redeveloping all the housing solely for low income mm-hmm. households. Like what lessons had been learned from previous public housing construction or rehabilitation programs that were incorporated into Hope 6? Sure. I think, it, as you say, it's it's got a long, complicated history. I'll hit some of the highlights. Mm-hmm. Um, so public housing was started as part of the New Deal, the Housing Act of 1937. And so the federal government started funding the creation of public housing developments, primarily in urban areas. I think right from the get-go, there was deep racism and segregation built into the system and inequities based on race with Black communities having fewer amenities and often being located in less desirable areas. Mm -hmm. Starting in the 70s under Nixon, President Nixon, uh, funding for housing, public housing really declined, flatlined or declined, and public housing development started falling into greater and greater disrepair. And I think through the last couple centuries, the last couple decades of the 20th century and and into the 21st, um, there were more and more problems with the quality of housing, with social problems in public housing communities. And I think at this time, we also had evidence from urban sociologists like William Julius Wilson starting to really show the detrimental effects of concentrated poverty neighborhoods for children and adults um, and communities. Mm-hmm. So I think all that together led to a desire to try to improve public housing. Um, so the federal government commissioned a big report and then started the HOPE 6 program to try to rebuild and improve public housing communities, both the housing quality but also to lower concentrated poverty and to increase economic opportunities for public housing residents. And what role did the the mixed income part of that play? Why did they feel I I, I mean I guess I can see, you know, it's it's deconcentration, but could you talk a little bit more about sort of the the philosophy or approach there? I think again from from work like William Julius Wilson's The Truly Disadvantaged who showed how the loss of more educated and more economically secure members of of a community and a movement towards concentrated poverty was very detrimental. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, evidence from, from many other sources as well started to show the benefits of more integrated communities, both racially integrated, economically integrated, for providing economic vitality, for providing opportunities, for providing role models for children and youth about their potential, um, for improving school quality. So I think for all of those reasons, the government reports and the policy that was developed really sought to increase economic integration and to Mm -hmm. move away from very concentrated poverty neighborhoods that were populated entirely by families in poverty or families, people with disabilities. Got it. And I think we'll almost certainly come back to this, but we'll need to kind of juxtapose that deconcentration against the more kind of modern conversations about gentrification and Mm -hmm. sort of the Mm -hmm. flip side to that. Exactly. So you're researching the impacts of the Hope 6 program, but you're not the first to look into it. It started 30 years ago now. What did the previous research have to say about the impact of the Hope 6 program on the residents of public housing and on their surrounding communities? And as part of your summary, I think it might be helpful to mention some of the shortcomings of that earlier work that you had hoped to improve upon with your own team's research. 
Sure. So there certainly have been many evaluations and studies of the HOPE 6 program using different methodologies, different methods, different statistical analytic techniques, focusing on different locations. I think all of those studies had limitations in, in internal and external validity in different ways. So, Which we should probably say literally every study has limitations. Yes, so, well, yeah. absolutely. Not, not, absolutely. A, not on a, That's not a knock on That's completely true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I for think our, and for our listeners who... Are, uh, who are who are not researchers or social right. scientists? Internal I'll validity, what that means. external validity. Okay, then I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you can go right ahead if you'd like, Mike. Um, so I think many of the studies looked at just a handful of sites of hope sick sites in just one or two cities, for example. So you couldn't really tell if if what they found in those sites would generalize to other sites across the country. External validity. Exactly. <laughs> Many of them used quite descriptive methods. So just looked at the community before the hope six grant and then after the hope six grant. So you couldn't really tell if the hope six redevelopment caused any changes that were found. A quality lesson in internal validity. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, and also most studies, previous studies focused on pretty short-term outcomes. So we were interested in looking at a longer-term picture. There's, mm -hmm. there's certainly, you know, there is, it's a substantial body of research. There are some studies that are definitely more rigorous and more inclusive of a wide variety of sites across the country. I would say the predominant findings were that HOPE 6 led to a decrease in neighborhood poverty mm. um, and an increase in sort of economic variability in neighborhoods. There, I would say, is really mixed research about whether the racial composition of neighborhoods changed after HOPE 6. So some earlier work suggested that families of color, I think particularly black families, were far more likely to be displaced from HOPE 6 redevelopment. So often they sort of displaced everyone in the community and tore down the housing and mm -hmm. rebuilt it. Um, many of the people who were displaced were not allowed to come back. But mixed research about whether there was overall racial displacement or changes in the racial makeup of neighborhoods in which Hope Six was Hope Six developments were located. If I can jump in there really quickly, mm -hmm. when you say, you know, many of these families were not allowed to come back, like yes. what what form did that, you know, if it was a prohibition, what did that look like? Different sort of policies and systems in different locations, I think. But in some places, so many Hope Six grants were simply demolition grants. So they just tore mm. down the public mm -hmm. housing and did not rebuild it. So, of course, in that case, there's not really anything to come back to. Some of them, many of them were rebuilding grants. So they tore down the housing and then rebuilt it. But many of the sites sort of put new rules or prohibitions into place, which limited original residents' ability to come back. So drug testing, different sorts of policies. Um, many families also, once they got relocated, they might have found a different neighborhood. You know, they became embedded within that neighborhood and perhaps didn't want to move yet again. Right, right. I think that the third area that we were looking at in our study is the issue of resources. So a goal mm -hmm. of the HOPE 6 program was to increase economic opportunities for residents and increase services, amenities, and communities. And there's been very little research on that area in the past. A couple qualitative studies suggesting that there was some improvement in services over the short term, but no really systematic work in that area. Mm -hmm. And in both the 
research community and the advocacy community, what's the current attitude toward Hope 6, you know, more than 10 years after it's ended? I gather that there are, you know, let, <laughs> let's call them mixed feelings. Right. And you mentioned how there's a sense among at least some people that this program was really used as a way to bring private capital in and gentrify neighborhoods rather than benefit the people living in these public housing communities. I think Ed Getz is, is one such researcher who has kind of yes. made that claim. Exactly. I think you're right. I think there are mixed feelings about the success of, of Hope 6 in meeting its goals and certainly some scholars and advocates and policymakers that think that it caused more harm than good, that many people, original residents were displaced, mm -hmm. um, many permanently displaced. And some like Getz argue that there was, you know, I think he calls it a, a sort of government system of gentrification or something like that. And there's also evidence that it led to an overall decrease in, in affordable housing units overall. So definitely mixed mixed feelings about its success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think, you know, just to piggyback on on some of those criticisms, another thing that people point out is that this came from Congress in the early 90s. Like in 1992, there was a, a commission to, to study you know, distressed public housing mm -hmm. as a as a central problem, and you know they came up with this number of eighty six thousand units that we need to redevelop, which right. I wouldn't pretend which was only that. a very small portion of all of the public housing units. I believe yes, yes, um, but they're around what one point two million at the time, or maybe that's the number yeah, today. Yeah, that's the number today. That's, okay. Yeah, I think it was more like one point four or five at that point, and. They demolished or redeveloped 250,000 inevitably through this, through the Hope Six program. And so, you know, I think that's an easy target for people who think that the program overreached, right? That, that people found more problems in public housing than actually existed. But, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that's definitely true, but like that's, I think, one of the things that people point to, right? Well, yeah, the fact that we ended up with less less public housing at the end is is one right. <laughs> critique yeah, for sure. And and I think the way I mean, I think we'll we'll talk later on. I think about some of the lessons learned and where we're going in the future with public housing right. um, mm -hmm. redevelopment policies. And I think one of the major lessons learned was the negative effects of this sort of wholesale at one period of time demolition and redevelopment where. Yeah. By definition, you are displacing every single person in that community, which means not only that each individual has to move, but that you're completely breaking all of the social ties that mm -hmm. that community had mm -hmm. and that people are being displaced to different locations. Children might have to switch schools. Parents mm -hmm. might have a more difficult time getting to their job. And I think we've, we've learned that lesson and new models of redevelopment are really taking that into account and trying to develop redevelopment systems that that very much limit external displacement of that sort. Right. And and also, I think that's a great point. And we also didn't have one-for-one -one replacement mm -hmm. built into this program, right? right. So in, in a lot of cases, housing authorities chose to replace fewer units than they demolished, right? right. Um, so people inevitably couldn't necessarily come back. Um, right. Or replace them with other types of affordable yep. housing, not yep. public housing mm -hmm. development. I knew very little about this program going into it other than kind of the name and the mixed income nature and so forth. And I'm kind of amazed at how much of this 
reminds me of urban renewal, despite mm-hmm. it coming, yeah. you know, 30, mm-hmm. 40, 50 years later. Right. And us, you know, having a lot of lessons from urban <laughs> renewal by, by the 1990s and 2000s, yep. like we knew a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And the, the I think the policy did take a sort of new urbanist design perspective mm-hmm. of trying to mm-hmm. move away from big high rises into more attractive buildings that were better integrated into the community. So I think it did take into account some of those previous lessons. Yes, I would agree for sure. So, you know, before we get too far into the study, you know, as a researcher myself, I'd, I'd like to hear more about how, you know, you and your research team came to this inquiry. So your own background is in developmental psychology and you're collaborating with folks in that field and in social work. This is not your first time um, studying housing and neighborhood outcomes for sure, but but more of your work is probably, if I understand it, you know, focused on family composition, adolescent risk behaviors, um, you know, more bread and butter developmental psychology um, mm-hmm. topics. And then your research team is different as well as from kind of the usual suspects in housing <laughs> policy. But I think this is a really outstanding paper. And and so I'm really curious how this group kind of came together and how you came to, to, to study this topic in particular. And, you know, if you might get into like how your different kind of training or skills like brought a different perspective than we usually see. Sure. So I am indeed a developmental psychologist, although I did postdoctoral training in policy, public policy and demography. Mm -hmm. So most of my research focuses on economic and racial inequities um, and how those affect children's development and family well-being. I've done lots of work evaluating other types of policies or programs like welfare reform and early childhood education. But I think my interest in housing and in communities is a key part of developmental psychology. So Mm -hmm. a, a sort of a key tenant is that children and humans in general develop in context and that the context in which we live have a substantial impact on our developmental trajectories. So I've been engaged in research on housing and and communities for decades. Actually, my first sort of research projects out of graduate school were in the south side of Chicago, working in public housing developments in the south side of Chicago. But I think this type of policy analysis is not so common overall in the field of developmental psychology. And my my colleague, Sam Texera, on this project is a social worker who has done a lot of community development work, but often from a sort of participatory perspective, working in communities. So this sort of perspective was was new for her as well. But we started this project actually a few years ago. We were invited to collaborate with a public housing redevelopment proposal, proposed project in Boston, where a large public housing development is going to be redeveloped into a mixed income community. And the public housing authority and the developer and social service agencies working with them really wanted an academic partner Mm -hmm. to try to understand the needs, the goals and strengths of the current community to help inform the redevelopment effort. So we got involved in that project and and through that started really delving into the previous literature and the Hope 6 literature and realized that there were some, some what we saw as big holes in the research base that we thought we might be able to fill. So we pulled some of our graduate students together and got some funding, a small grant from the Russell Sage Foundation, which we appreciate, and launched into this project. Cool. So 
Your research is basically asking the question of how neighborhoods changed in places where Hope 6 redevelopments took place relative to those where public housing existed, but it was not redeveloped through Hope 6 during this study period, at least. And as the title of your article says, you're specifically looking at neighborhood poverty, racial composition, and community resources. You've mentioned a little bit about what those meant. So, you know, maybe we don't have to go too far into detail for each of these and what they mean, because we will talk about them in the results as well. But I wondered if you could talk maybe at least a little bit about what a good outcome represents for some of these things. I think for something like community resources, it's pretty straightforward. Like, are there more of them? Right. But, you know, with lower poverty, partly because of this gentrification conversation, if the share of the population that is black decreases, is that is that a good thing? Or what are the different ways that some of these outcomes could be interpreted? Right. That's a great question and a challenging set of issues. So some of the research on Hope 6 and similar policies take an individual perspective. So they follow individual residents of of a community or of many communities over time to see if their lives have improved or if they were displaced and then can look at the whole population they're studying and you know see if those changes change the tenor of, of the neighborhood. In this study, we are using all administrative data. So we decided to focus on the neighborhood as the unit of analysis and look at changes in neighborhood characteristics. So poverty rates, affluence rates, racial demographics and resources. And it's so Hope Six had some clear goals to increase economic integration. So if you look at a goal like that and say, well, what does that really mean? And how would that in what way or for whom would that benefit residents? So you could get economic integration by keeping all of the original residents of the community who are primarily poor and bringing in middle income or higher income neighborhoods neighbors. Mm -hmm. You could change the economic integration by pushing out some of the poor residents and either just pushing them out or pushing them out and then bringing in higher income neighbors. Or you could change the tenor of the neighborhood by keeping the original residents and helping them to improve their economic resources so they became less poor, less likely to be poor. It's a little hard to tear those possibilities apart with administrative data. So we used Right, you're not you're not tracking the, the We're not tracking and the income changes of individual right. people yeah. or households, right? And exactly. that's I mean that's extraordinarily hard to do just given the data we have available it's, most it's, of the time it's in the US. It's difficult and very expensive and very time consuming. Yeah. So using administrative data though what we tried to do is look at a at a number of different measures. So we looked at the percent of people in poverty, but also the percent of people in affluence at like the top 5% of the income distribution. Mm-hmm as well as median incomes. And we looked at the percentages, but we also looked at the number of people in each of those categories so that we could try to dig in a little bit into this issue of, for example, gentrification and displacement. Could you talk a little bit more about that 5% threshold or looking at people in that group, uh, the top 5% of the income distribution? Presumably, this is the top 5% of the income distribution for either the whole country or the region in which the public housing is located. But you're also measuring median household income, which is a common thing to do, Mm -hmm. including this top 5% of the income distribution as a measure of the number of affluent residents is something I hadn't seen before. I'm sure someone's done it, but mm-hmm. it's certainly much less common. Like, what distinction are you trying to make there? You know, 
in what ways do you see a rising median household income as maybe having different impacts on the neighborhood than a rising share of the households being affluent? Right. So I think one reason was this gentrification issue. So I think typically we think of gentrification as both the displacement of lower resourced families, but also the sort of really higher resource families, high mm-hmm. income, high education families coming in and, and sort of taking over a neighborhood. So we wanted to get at not only was the median income shifting, but were the people at the upper echelons of the income distribution coming into the neighborhood. So we saw that as one way of trying to get at this gentrification issue. I think the other reason is there is research in sociology and other fields and and developmental psychology looking at the effects of poverty versus affluence in neighborhoods and that they're not just flips of each other, right? Because there's also the whole middle. So you can have a decline, you can have an increase in affluence, but actually not have a decline in poverty because you're displacing people in the middle. Um, There's also evidence that even a small portion of affluent residents, four or five percent, is an important predictor of things like lowered adolescent risk behavior. So there's a study, I think it was the early 90s from Crane, showing that just having five percent of people in the neighborhood with professional level jobs was a very substantive predictor of lower adolescent pregnancy rates. So it can be an indication of economic opportunities. Again, to go back to William Julius Wilson's argument that people with economic power and professional level jobs are really important sources of resources for other people in the neighborhood to have as role models, to have as access for information into how to move up the economic ladder. Did you think about maybe setting a different threshold for that income distribution when I'm looking at it, I feel like 5% is, is 5% quite high. 5% is that's, pretty high. It's a very affluent household, especially for a yes. public housing community. I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, if someone's in the top 20% making $120,000 or whatever, you know, that level is, that's a very, you know, that's a professional, presumably they're having some influence, the same kind of influence mm-hmm. as the person making 500000 or whatever. Right. How did you come to that threshold specifically? That's a great question. I, I, that was a data limitation of administrative mm. data. So mm-hmm. we um, created that measure using census data, decennial census data and um, ACS data. And they have sort of categories of income. And that was a category that was easily distinguished that um, we could track over time okay. that equal to approximately 5%, the top 5% of the income distribution. So it was a, a data-driven decision, that exact cut point. Got it. Could you speak to the issue of selection bias and how you tried to address it in your study and what selection bias means in the context of this right. study? So selection bias is sort of a perennial problem in um, almost all research that's not random experimental designs. So for example, if you want to understand the effects of say something like parental divorce on children, you can't simply compare parents who get divorced to parents who don't get divorced and look at their child outcomes, because there's very likely to be different characteristics of those two groups of people that help to select them into becoming divorced that also are likely to affect their children. Mm -hmm. So the same thing with Hope Six neighborhoods. They weren't randomly assigned across the country. It was a selective process. Communities had to apply for a Hope Six grant. So we can't simply compare 
communities, public housing communities that got HOPE 6 grants to those that did not because they're likely to be different, to have very different characteristics. And in fact, we show that they do have very different characteristics, that the public housing communities that got HOPE 6 grants had much higher poverty rates. They had much higher proportions of Black residents than other public housing communities in urban areas. Mm -hmm. Um, They actually had slightly higher rates of services and amenities before getting a HOPE 6 grant than did non-HOPE 6 sites. Which sort of points toward that concern that this is like private capital wanting to go into the places where there's already sort of right. the, the resources there and kind of capitalize on them, right? Exactly. Yep. So the, that was part of the HOPE 6 program's agenda was to find communities that had the potential to improve and to improve mm-hmm. their resources. So perhaps the argument is you need a, some level of a decent base to be able mm-hmm. to to improve. So as I noted, we really we, we showed that there was very substantial selection bias or differences across places that got HOPE 6 grants and those that didn't. So we used a new analytic technique to address that. It's built on prior work, but it's it's called the Flex Panel DID system that's available in Stata. And it uses a matching algorithm to match, quote, treatment groups. So here the treatment is receiving a HOPE 6 grant mm-hmm. to control groups, which is a community, a public housing community, not receiving um, a HOPE 6 grant. Just to clarify here, because I myself don't remember this from your paper, and I don't think I, I took a note on it. But for those controls, these are places that had public housing. Were they also places that applied to HOPE 6 and didn't receive it? Or could they have applied but not received it? Or maybe some didn't apply at all? It's just like, is the control just the existence of public housing? Or is it the existence of public housing plus they applied and didn't get a grant? It's just the existence of public housing. Okay. And some probably applied or definitely applied and yes. others didn't. But and others didn't. Right. That's the thing that Right. We did not have okay. access to those data about whether they applied. Got it. Um, so they were all public housing developments in urban areas in the continental United States that had public housing developments with at least 25 units. So we excluded scattered sites. We excluded um, elderly-only developments because those were not the target of the HOPE 6 program. Mm -hmm. I think what makes this, the technique that we used, a little bit of an improvement on past research is that when you're thinking of the, quote, the treatment of HOPE 6, getting a HOPE 6 grant, there was variation across time, right? So the program ran for many years. So grants were given out over different years. So there's variation in the timing of when the treatment started and variations in the length of treatment. So in the matching process, we took into account the variation in time. So we matched HOPE 6 sites with control sites two years before they got their HOPE 6 grant. So Mm -hmm. if we argued when they would be applying for their HOPE 6 grant and having to present neighborhood characteristics to show their eligibility. And we matched on year, we matched on the region in the country, and then we matched on a whole host of neighborhood characteristics like the poverty rate and the affluence rate and the racial demographics. Also things like housing vacancy rates, home ownership rates. So really getting a strong match. So for each HOPE 6 site, so the census track in which a HOPE 6 um, development was located, we found its best match census track at that time period, at exactly mm-hmm. the two years before the HOPE 6 grant was started in that community. And part of the thinking there is just that like, 
you know, if you complete a project in 1999, right before there's a big recession, you know, right. and you see the impacts of that, they might have much more to do with a national recession than anything specific to the Hope 6 redevelopment compared mm -hmm. to something that is completed mm -hmm. in, say, 2004, and then you're measuring the next two years, which look great exactly. until exactly. until you get around 2008 and maybe you're, you're back down again. Right. And also the Hope 6 program changed over time a little yep. bit. So their priorities shifted a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and we were able to show that all of those pre-existing differences between Hope 6 communities and non-Hope 6 communities were erased after our matching. So mm -hmm. there were no more significant, well, with one or two little tiny exceptions, no mm -hmm. more significant differences between our, quote, treatment groups and our control groups. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's great. That's hard to do. So related, our audience is probably tired of hearing this phrase, but um, I'm working on a, a book on, on black neighborhoods. So we will never tire of hearing about it, Mike. <laughs> so, you know, so sometime soon, you might have we might have an entire podcast. I'm going to have to like actually mention the fact that I have a book at some point on this podcast. That but... would be a good idea. <laughs> that that would be a good idea. Your your publisher might appreciate that. Um, so, anywho, um, so my attention, of course, was was directed at the. Uh, right away to the racial composition of, mm -hmm. of Hope Six census tracts, um, which you just talked about. But specifically, those census tracts were approximately sixty percent black, and the potential controls, the the you know kind of all public housing neighborhoods in your sample were thirty three percent black. So, you know, this tells us that there's any number, there's a few potential explanations for this, right? That Either we let public housing become much more deteriorated uh, when they were housing black people or they were in black neighborhoods or housing authorities wanted to redevelop public housing that was housing black people or in black neighborhoods for good or bad reasons. And I guess, you know, also one quirk about Hope 6 that we I don't think have brought up is that a lot of the spending and redevelopment was pretty heavily concentrated in Chicago and Atlanta in particular, and those cities are two of the most black cities in, in the country. So having seen the data in more detail, like what do you think are some of the most likely explanations for this concentration of Hope 6 redevelopment in, in black neighborhoods? Well, my understanding, my reading of the policies is that the Hope 6 selection process did not assess or follow racial demographics of neighborhoods mm -hmm. as part of its application process right. or part of its sort of follow-up process. So I that suggests that it wasn't a specifically targeted selection, you know, purposely targeting black neighborhoods. And there were hope six sites and states and locations all across the country. So, you know, dozens of, of different locations. So I don't think it's just sort of an argument of focusing on particularly particular cities with high black populations. Right. Having said all that, I mean, I think the Hope Six program did target very distressed public housing developments. And mm -hmm. I think there is very clear evidence of racism and segregation in the public housing program writ large and in lots of other housing policies that have mm -hmm. led to racially segregated neighborhoods. So I think it's possible that it's just by targeting the most distressed public housing communities, those were far more likely to have high black populations. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So moving on into the results, now that we've kind of set up the study itself, 
When you looked at all of these tracks together, you found that poverty rates were about two to three percentage points lower in Hope 6 neighborhoods compared to the controls in the years after redevelopment. And that's considerable. But by year 10, the difference was no longer statistically significant. And similarly, median household incomes went up in the Hope 6 census tracts relative to the controls. But after the second year post-completion, so after the projects were completed, that mm -hmm. difference also became statistically insignificant. You did some additional analyses that we will talk about later. But for this full sample, are there any other details or nuances that you want to share on the poverty and income metrics specifically? And on that same track, how should we think about the fact that the impact on incomes and poverty in the Hope Six neighborhoods was no longer statistically significant or different uh, by 10 years after project completion, if not earlier in some mm -hmm. cases. Like, is that an indictment of the program and its impacts, or should we interpret those results in a different way? Well, I think clearly some of the results did fade. So back to our analytic techniques, one of the other strengths of this technique is that you can look at the impacts of HOPE 6 over different lengths of time. So we looked at the impacts by the end of the HOPE 6 grant, and then through two years after, five years after, and 10 years after. So as you noted, we found a three percentage point decrease in poverty in HOPE 6 sites compared to their match control sites by the end of the HOPE 6 redevelopment. By 10 years later, it had declined to about 2.5%. So mm -hmm. not a huge shift, and that was just barely below sort of standard statistical significance. But do you recall the the base from which that reduction occurred? Like, was the poverty rate in these neighborhoods, you know, twenty percent, thirty percent? Well, the poverty rate in um, I'd have to look at my tables. I feel like maybe the threshold was around forty percent, even. I, for the yeah, I think below. so. It was exactly. It was forty forty percent. Okay. It's an actual percentage point decline from that. Right. So I believe it went down to 36 and a half, 37%. Yeah. So three percentage point decline, right. roughly an eight-ish yeah, percent it, decline. Of yeah. the original, yes. So, right. So in Hope 6 sites, it went down to about 36.5% mm -hmm. poverty. And in non-Hope 6 sites, it went down like 0.4%. So it went down to about 39.6%. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to kind of clarify that because, you know, a three percentage point decline in a neighborhood where the poverty rate is 15% is much more dramatic Bigger, than where it's, right. say, 60%. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So the, the median income increases did dissipate more quickly, as I think we're going to talk about in a minute, that that varied by the, the type of neighborhood, by characteristics of neighborhoods and by characteristics of the public housing developments themselves. And in some areas, those shifts were much more sustained than mm -hmm. in others. And for that last question, does that mean the, the program didn't work? You know, like how, how do we interpret the fact that these impacts seem to, to fade away after either two years or five years or 10 years? I think many would argue that the program showed limited effects. And decreasing poverty and increasing economic integration was only one of the goals of the program. And as we'll discuss more, the other goals do not, from our data, appear to have been met. Right. Yeah. Can you talk about the impact on the racial makeup and the availability of institutional resources, social services, grocery stores, other sure. community resources like those? 
Yes. So those were two of the other sort of categories of outcomes we looked at. We looked at the percent of Black residents and the percent of non-Black people of color in the neighborhoods and showed that those did not shift in response to HOPE 6. Mm -hmm. um, so that, again, addresses some of the gentrification and the risks of, of sort of whitening of neighborhoods and mm -hmm. pushing out people of color. We did not show a substantial shift. And we looked at a range of services and amenities in the community. So we looked at basic things like grocery stores and restaurants. We looked at perhaps slightly less socially desirable amenities like bars and liquor stores. And we looked at social services. Um, and then we looked at a whole host of other services and amenities that we thought spoke to Hope Six's goals of increasing economic and social opportunities for residents. So educational programs, cultural institutions, recreational institutions, medical services, across all of those kinds of services and amenities, we saw no changes. So Hope Six hmm. did not appear to be successful at increasing the availability of supportive services or opportunity services in the communities mm -hmm. in which it was played out. So those were the results for the full sample of census Correct. tracts. You broke down the analysis in a bunch of other ways, though, comparing treatments and controls that started out above a threshold poverty rate to those below it, those where the black share of the population started above a specific threshold to those that started below it, just to name a few examples. So the question you're getting at here, let's just use the poverty threshold as an example, is whether Hope 6 had a greater impact on, say, high poverty neighborhoods where it was implemented than on lower poverty neighborhoods where it was implemented, if there's some distinction between these places. We don't have to get into the results of every one of the comparisons mm -hmm. you make because you do a lot of them, but could you tell us what you were aiming for by taking that approach and maybe just share some of the results of a, a few comparisons you found especially interesting or that seem surprising or important in some way? Sure. So I think previous research has shown that there has suggested that there was variability in the in the success of Hope 6 in changing neighborhood contexts. And some were more successful than others in reaching the goals of the Hope 6 program. So mm -hmm. we sought to really systematically address that. What we found was that Hope 6 redevelopments did appear to be notably more successful in the most distressed neighborhoods. Um, so in the highest poverty neighborhoods, when we compared neighborhoods that started at above 40% poverty versus below, we found that pretty much all of the benefits for poverty rates and median incomes occurred in the high poverty neighborhoods. So mm -hmm. by 10 years, through 10 years out after redevelopment, there was a five percentage point decrease in poverty in those really high poverty neighborhoods. A similar pattern for neighborhoods that were predominantly black. So more improvement in predominantly black neighborhoods than in neighborhoods with fewer black residents. I was really encouraged. You know, there's some dissipation over time that we talked about, but I was encouraged by the findings that poverty declined in the highest poverty and most racially segregated neighborhoods. Reducing concentrated poverty was was just obviously an explicit goal of Hope 6. And so some people see that as gentrification sometimes, you know, but like you can't look at a decline in poverty in a neighborhood and say that it's a negative outcome in my view. Obviously, context matters. But for me, the fact that it appears that this happened in the highest poverty, again, most racially segregated neighborhoods without reducing the share of African-Americans living in those neighborhoods, 
you know, it seems like a very good outcome, particularly, you know, the effects are not huge. So we're not seeing like mass displacement of people in poverty. So anyway, that's I mean, that's more editorial that you, you can choose or choose not to comment on. But I really kind of see that as a, as a very positive. I agree. Outcome. And I think that the effects actually grew over time in the highest poverty. Oh, OK, neighborhoods. OK. So the so decrease in poverty rates within the highest poverty neighborhoods actually grew over time. Okay, okay. About a whole percentage point by 10 years out. So it was 4. Point, I mean 5.2% decline by 10 years out for the highest poverty neighborhoods in the rate of poverty in that neighborhood. Yeah. Of course, the highest poverty neighborhood has more higher poverty neighborhoods have more room to yep. decline, mm, right? Yeah. They have less of a, a floor effect, but nonetheless the the most distressed neighborhoods are those in which we saw the greatest improvement without seeing declines in the black population, for mm -hmm. example, or increases in affluence. I also feel like it sort of shows the value of slicing this data and analyzing it in different ways, because if you had only done the kind of full sample, you know, you can get yourself into a situation where you've got some neighborhoods that are maybe making dramatic improvements, some might be backsliding and that could average mm -hmm. out into like, wow, nothing happened. But then you're missing the fact that there were some places where you had real progress and maybe there's something to learn from those. And like, mm. you know, maybe we need to apply the lessons of those to the ones that didn't improve. And again, right. if you had not looked at these different thresholds and compared different kinds of Hope Six neighborhoods to each other, those differences could have been overlooked. Correct. Correct. And we also found evidence that there were characteristics of the policies themselves or of how they were implemented that made a difference. So, for example, the benefits of HOPE 6 on these economic outcomes for neighborhoods were stronger for HOPE 6 redevelopment grants that were larger, that were more expensive. Um, that wasn't mm -hmm. just because it was a larger housing development. So it didn't vary very much depending on the number of public housing units to start with. But more expensive grants where they spent more money. But also, I think mm -hmm. perhaps more importantly, is the effects were the strongest among public housing developments that switched over to mixed income developments. So even though a goal of HOPE 6 was to create mixed income communities, only a portion, only about a third of the HOPE 6 redevelopments switched into or transitioned into being mixed income developments. In that third, right. we saw notably larger effects. So by 10 years out, there was a seven percentage point decline in poverty in those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Thinking mm -hmm. about the private capital aspect of this, because it, it was another explicit goal of the program to not just have public funding, but also leverage that public funding to also secure private funding to kind of, you know, do more. And maybe there's other kind of just philosophical goals about public-private partnerships and that kind of thing. I think up to this point, we've kind of framed that mostly in a negative way and, you know, this interest of capitalists wanting to come in and, and kind of make money off of these gentrifying communities or whatever. But what's the what's the positive story here, if there is one, of that approach? You know, it, it's, it certainly seems like more money spent on this housing is a good thing. You know, you look at the low-income housing tax credit and other housing programs in the U.S., subsidy programs, they all leverage private funding as well. But like, is there anything to say about that aspect of this program? 
honestly, we did not directly address those issues in this in this work. So we didn't look specifically at the private funding or the public-private partnerships. So I don't think I can speak to it very deeply. I mean, mm-hmm. I would reiterate that the Goetz's claims of decreasing black populations and increasing white populations did not play out in our data at the national level. Um, so we did not find mm-hmm. that that racial demographic shift. Having said that, I mean, there certainly is evidence of both a loss of public housing units as an absolute number through the Hope Six program. So mm-hmm. one estimate that came from the national evaluation of, of Hope Six that was conducted with folks at Case Western Reserve University found a loss of 43,000 public housing units from Hope Six mm-hmm. and that only about 20% of the new units were occupied by original residents. So there definitely is evidence of displacement, but I think our data show that there's not Individual residents may have been displaced, but low-income residents overall were not displaced in a massive mm-hmm. manner. This question is outside of your research, I think, but you know, while I've got you here, I'm going to try to get a little bit more of a history lesson. So you talked about demolition through Hope 6. I'd love to just hear more about that aspect of the program. I know you were focused more on, I think, just the new construction, but there's also a rehabilitation element. What, how did the, how does demolition fit into this goal though? If Hope Six is about building these mixed income communities, why were they in some places just tearing this down and kind of what happened after that? That's a great question. I'm not sure I can fully answer. I think many communities got demolition grants. Um, some got demolition grants and then got revitalization grant. So the Mm. demolition grant was sort of the first stage. So first they tore down all of the housing, which displaced everyone. And then they tried to rebuild. And probably some failed and never took that next step, which again is just giving me uh, flashbacks of urban renewal lectures. Some just didn't get the revitalization grants. Some Mm. may have never intended to. They just wanted to remove this severely distressed public housing and, and move on to something else. Yeah, so like the Robert Taylor Homes in right. Chicago, right? That's like right along the mm-hmm. expressway um, was possibly the most notorious, dangerous uh, public housing development in the country at, at different points in the 80s and 90s. I think that just got demolished and everybody mm-hmm. ran away. I, and I'm not, I'm not talking right. about the residents. I'm talking about politicians. The, <laughs> the politicians who who were and a housing mm-hmm. authority that was actually right. taken over by HUD right. because of uh, years and years of mismanagement and corruption. Yeah. <laughs> yes. right. This is where I started my career, working in public housing. Indeed. Yes, I'm telling you. So I, I think you're right. I think Chicago was sort of, you know, ground zero for some of these efforts um, and some of the least successful efforts of revitalizing mm-hmm. public housing communities. I mean, again, I think newer policies are trying to learn from what many would consider to be these somewhat egregious mistakes of displacement mm-hmm. rather than redevelopment and rejuvenation and of, you know, really inadequately planning for and supporting the original residents and helping them to find um, new accommodations. And, you know, as I mentioned, splitting up communities, really breaking social ties. Um, so even in, in communities where 
housing, the quality of housing has declined and communities that may have substantial crime issues, drug issues, it's residents' homes. And many of them have lived there for decades, sometimes for generations. They have very strong social ties. They have a very strong sense of connection, of ownership over their neighborhood, even if they they themselves indicate some of the significant problems in their neighborhood. So I think those issues really weren't given adequate, perhaps adequate attention and concern from the get-go mm-hmm. of this policy. Mm-hmm. So Hope 6 was discontinued in 2010, as we said. Looking ahead, especially with your research in mind, what lessons do you think we should take from Hope 6 and apply to any future efforts to either build or, or rebuild public housing you talk about how the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative and the rental assistance demonstration programs sort of took the place of Hope 6 after it was discontinued. I was hoping you could talk a bit about those as well and, and the role that Hope 6 played in their development. And again, kind of lessons learned. And maybe just as a kind of to, to, to signal this, I don't know where Jordan Downs fits into this, the redevelopment happening here in Los Angeles or Yesler Terrace up in Seattle, where I'm from. I feel like these are kind of the next generation of these redevelopments and and maybe are doing things a little better, even mm-hmm. if not if not perfectly. And maybe we can talk a little bit about those to close this out. Sure. So, I mean, I think one big lesson that was learned was this issue of displacement and massive displacement and also the relatedly the right of return, the right for people if they mm-hmm. are displaced to come back to their neighborhood. So the new policies, CNI and RAD, both have some level of right of return or lower displacement. I believe CNI mandates a one-to-one replacement of all affordable housing units that are torn down, but they mm-hmm. don't require them on site. So I so mm-hmm. in CNI, there is some emerging evidence that they require that one-to-one replacement, but many people are being moved off-site. So they're developing new housing, but not necessarily in that same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're still breaking up neighborhoods and and social connections. Is there any kind of like proximity requirement where it's like, or can you be... You have to be in the same city, but it could be on the entirely opposite side, that kind of thing. I don't know. I mean, I think most of them are in the same city, but I'm not sure how that, you know, what the exact policy parameters are, honestly. You know, most of these programs and policies, it's a particular public housing authority that receives the grant, which are Mm -hmm. typically rather geographically constrained within a particular city. So I would guess that, and the the examples that I've seen of just specific sites, the new locations, the new units that they're building through the Choice Initiative tend to be in the same city and in the same general area, but not in the same specific neighborhood. Something I saw, I've seen with Jordan Downs, which I think is promising, Yesler might also be doing this, is the sort of phased redevelopment as a strategy for reducing. Could you talk about that? Yes, yeah. yeah. So, well, you plugged your book, so I'll plug my new study. So actually, (laughs) Sam Texera and I, who was my co-author on this paper, we have a a big new grant and we are studying the redevelopment of the largest and I I think I believe one of the oldest public housing developments in New England that is going to be redeveloped into a mixed income community. And I think they are trying to incorporate a lot of lessons learned from prior research. And one is to do as much as they can to limit external displacement. And they do that mm-hmm. by using a phased redevelopment plan. So essentially what that means is they start mm-hmm. building in one small part of the 
public housing community, maybe have to tear down a couple buildings and displace those people and then build a, a new building and then move people over. So it's mm -hmm. only people in the very first phase that get externally displaced and everyone else has to live with construction um, next door, right. but do not get externally displaced from their neighborhood. So they get to move directly into a brand new apartment within their community. Right. And Shane brought up Jordan Downs in, in South Los Angeles or, or the Watts area. And that's a similar, that's been a similar process. It has not been something I would call mm -hmm. smooth, uh, in part because of some longstanding environmental issues in the, in the surrounding mm -hmm. site, really. Um, yeah. So that's I, I think that's one lesson that really has been incorporated into to newer models, um, lessening displacement. I think another is, you know, continued efforts to incorporate an integrated services approach and really consider the needs of the residents and the desires, the wants of the residents, um, what they would like to mm -hmm. see in their neighborhood, what sorts of services they would find to be most helpful for their own particular needs, and coordinating with local social service agencies, public agencies like public libraries. So I think there's really a renewed or an increased attention to those sorts of efforts and to also getting resident feedback throughout the process. So trying to incorporate residents' voices in the redevelopment plans, how successfully mm -hmm. that will all play out. You can invite me back in, you know, five or eight years <laughs> yeah. and I will tell you. Exactly. Yeah, we'll have another episode on the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative in, in decade 12 or 15 of the Housing right. Voice podcast. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's one of the challenges. Did I say decade? I'm a year, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to live that long. Yes. Not quite that long. But I yes. think that's one of the major challenges of this type of work is that one, just the policies themselves. So in any large public housing development, it can take a year, 10 years to go through this process of redevelopment. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, from a research perspective, you want to understand the impacts on residents and on the community, not only immediately, but down the line, because some things can, can take yeah. a while to emerge and grow from these efforts. Um, yeah. So it really is, it's a, it's a long-term endeavor. This has come up on previous episodes, but it's something I, I just, I'm very interested in this idea of, the right to return and, mm -hmm. and, you know, allowing people to come back and how great that sounds in practice. And I could just imagine people thinking, you know, we're going to build this housing. Yeah, people are going to be displaced for a year or two. You know, maybe we're going to provide them some resources to make sure they can afford rent in the neighborhood. In the meantime, that's not always done. But even right. if it is, the studies I'm aware of that have followed this is they find that most people just don't come back. Even, you know, they're they're offered housing at a, a much lower than market rate price. They have this kind of priority access. And yet for a million different reasons that would be very hard to anticipate ahead of time, you can really only find out about after you've tried it and it has failed. Mm -hmm. um, they're just finding that that kind of approach doesn't work. And so I do think it's promising, even though it's taken a few decades of practice and learning to figure this out, that you really have to address displacement at the front end right. whenever possible right. and, and trying yep. to solve it 
after it's happened or, or mitigate the, the harms just doesn't right. work very well. And not surprisingly, right? So if people have to move and move into it, find a new place to live, move into a new home, meet their neighbors, you know, learn where the local stores are and resources are, they might not want to have to do it again two years later and uproot mm-hmm. their family and uproot all their daily routines yet again. Yeah. All right, Rebecca Levine Coley, thank you so much for coming on the Housing Voice podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can read more about Rebecca's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.